All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 172. Jason Lingerwood's with me. Wayne McCroy is back one more time. Um, I'm hoping that people can make it through the first hour. The knowledge we're going to lay down is the foundation that allows you to know so many things, like why the Latin terms are on your money, why the space shuttles were called what they were, where 9-11 encoding comes from. And for those who caught the last episode about 24-hour news cycles and baby Jessica, you couldn't possibly hope to recognize any of what we laid down there without understanding where we are here. And we're going to be covering Virgil, which is held up as the pinnacle of Western literature. And he was a Roman, of course. As far as we know, this may be the basis or oldest 9-11 encode we found. But first, you got to make it through hour one to get the knowledge base you need to understand what we're dropping in hour two. Let's jump in with these guys and do Virgil. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 172. Jason Lingering with is with me, and uh, Wayne McCroy is back. We're going for bedrock this time. Um, we've gone all the way back to Virgil, who most people are familiar with. He wrote a thing called the Ennead, uh, which is voted regularly the most important piece of Western literature ever written, which should tell us all something. A little like the movie Citizen Kane, right? Always voted best. I think a lot of people would argue that's not the best movie ever made, but yet it is always in the number one spot, which tells us something about the content. No different with Virgil. Um, Probably, my guess is, most of the people listening never read Virgil because I'm in my mid-50s, and they quit doing anything Greek or Roman or classics by the time I was in school. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good afternoon, because we're a little later than usual this day. Yeah, we are indeed. Uh, I want to do a shout out to the 12th grade teacher in Indonesia, Min, um, who has used our content from time to time to do assignments for that senior class. And uh, he just pinged me back, said hi, everything's going well for them. And he's using some of the AI episodes, I believe, to try to inform the young people a little more about what it means to use digital devices. Um, But anyhow, there it is. Cheers, Min, and your new class. Uh, What do you have for the intro? Anything, Jason? Let's see. We didn't do anything new this past week, but I know Richie would like us to come back on to do another live stream with him and go over Shoot the Moon. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. I saw it. I, I guess I misinterpreted the email. I saw it. Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, I'm also going to do a show with Marty Leeds here pretty quick, so it's not recorded yet. But anyone interested, that will be posted in the forum of recent appearances on Crow 777 Radio. And I imagine it will run on Marty's channel uh, in the very near future um, because we're recording very soon. Anyhow, I think that's about all we have. So welcome, Wayne. Good afternoon, gentlemen. So to me, this is a great capstone for the last couple of episodes we've done to show uh, basically the basis of Western culture, which is Rome, which is what we've been covering. Uh, We're going to go down the road for Virgil here, and uh, I'll just ask you point blank before we jump in, Wayne. Um, Does it feel like we're at bedrock here? Does it feel like we've kind of hit the beginning Oh, we're definitely well into the pay dirt, and uh, I would say, if not bedrock itself, uh, we're in the ballpark, man. I mean, this is really foundational, what we're going to go over today. So when I was young, I took it upon myself to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, Not too, too long ago, I went back and plowed through, um, uh, what's the, Dante's Inferno. That's a tough read, by the way. You'll notice that Virgil is also referenced there, and in the Ennead, which will be the basis for what we're talking about here, it references just about every 
old myth that matters, whether it be Rome, whether it be Greek or the, the reclassifying of everything by Rome, which leads us into how we live here today. Um, but I guess I'll leave it there. Let's, let's jump in, Jason. Let's, uh, let's draw the picture. I sing of warfare and a man at war. He came to Italy by destiny. <laughs> that is a good line to start with. So we'll we'll give a little upfront backstory here. Basically, how many if if we asked you um, how, what founded Rome, I'm guessing most people would say there were these two dudes named Romulus and Remus that were raised by a wolf. But there is a predecessor, which is why we're covering this. In the Aeneid, the hero Aeneas is the hero. When when Troy when Troy falls during the Trojan War, the gods tell this guy he's got a destiny. He basically takes off to go to Rome, and that is the founding of what we are told is the Roman Empire. But the descendants of Aeneas are Romulus and Remus. So now you kind of understand why we're doing what we're doing here. Anything bad, Wayne? Not really at this point. I think it's a little early on in the story, but yeah, you could you could see how uh, this will be important moving forward. That this is actually a predecessor of the Romulus and Remus story. All right, Jason's going to carry it forward for people who want to pay attention. You can play the numbers game in a lot of places, and Wayne and I both agree this might be the earliest death date encoding of the nine eleven game, our earliest we've found so far. Go ahead, Jason. So, who are we talking about, Publius? Virgilius Maro. Traditional birth and death dates, October 15th, 70 BC to September 21st, 19 BC. He was an ancient Roman poet of the Augustan period. He wrote three of the most famous poems in Latin literature. The Echologues, also known as the Bucolics, the Georgics, and the epic Aeneid. A number of minor poems collected in the appendix Virgiliana are sometimes attributed to him. Virgil is traditionally ranked as one of Rome's greatest poets. His Aeneid has been considered the national epic of ancient Rome since the time of its composition. Modeled after Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid follows the Trojan refugee Aeneas as he struggles to fulfill his destiny and reach Italy, where his descendants, Romulus and Remus, were to found the city of Rome. Virgil's work has had wide and deep influence on Western literature, most notably Dante's Divine Comedy, in which Virgil appears as Dante's guide through hell and purgatory. Right, and there's a few things that I would mention here. First of all, the death date is September 21, 19 BC. For those who'd like to count the ways, this is the earliest encoding of the ones and nines game uh, that we have seen. But if you do nothing else, just go look up the PDF. It's free online. You can find the Aeneid um, by Virgil. By the way, the name, and Wayne will get into this, sometimes it's spelled V-E-R and sometimes it's spelled V-I-R. We think that the original spelling is V-E-R in Virgil and that it was later to cover the root meaning of his name when it was changed to V-I-R in the modern era. But go look at the language there, and it's a good representation of how language has been lowered drastically. When you begin to read this poem, you understand it's a higher form of speaking. And not only that, and we're still getting to the bottom of this, once it's ported over into English, the people who did the translation, all the lines rhyme. So there's something. Yeah, I think that's very telling on the face of it itself. That <laughs> It rhymes even being translated into the English. So uh, it could be said that we're probably losing a lot of the original meaning in there because of this translation. 
Well, we know certainly that just to speak even modern Italian or old Latin, you lose all sense of gender. Um, the idea of a caste society, you can always tell from the original language if, if the person being spoken to is important. And we should mention that it is claimed the first so-called emperor Caesar of Rome ends up being a guy named Augustus, and he is directing by the story we're, we're telling here, and believe me, a lot of it's a story, um, he directs Virgil to write this. So basically, over a huge portion of Virgil's life, if there ever was such a man, this is written to include the last 11 count the ways years of his life. Go ahead, Jason. Well, I think it's also important to point out that this isn't necessarily a takedown of history. What it is, is it's a possible history that occurred. We're actually not really sure. Well, here's the thing, man. I'll, I'll ask everybody listening. When I was young, I was told that the Trojan War was just a myth, just a story never happened. Sometime later, supposedly some archaeologist found Troy and said, hey, look, I found Troy. This really did happen. So again, we, we have these narratives that are all mishmashed. But I think what's important here is the ideas being uh, offered out to everybody. I mean, how many people uh, would be aware that the claim in these very old stories is that Rome is founded by the Trojans after Troy falls. So, I mean, there's a lot to consider here. Virgil opens his epic poem by declaring its subject, warfare and a man at war, and asking a muse or goddess of inspiration to explain the anger of Juno, queen of the gods. The man in question is Aeneas, who is fleeing the ruins of his native city, Troy, which has been ravaged in a war with Achilles and the Greeks. The surviving Trojans accompany Aeneas on a perilous journey to establish a new home in Italy, but they must contend with the vindictive Juno. Juno harbors anger toward Aeneas because Carthage is her favorite city, and a prophecy holds that the race descended from the Trojans will someday destroy Carthage. So in a lot of ways, uh, one of the ways that I view this is if you look at the oldest myths uh, that are attributed to Greeks, there's a whole other thing going on there. It feels like everything's in sync with nature. Their chief concern is Jupiter or jovial ideas, Jove. And by the time it gets repurposed, and this seems to be the turning point, so the Greeks whack Troy, Troy falls. Everyone flees Troy and goes and founds Rome, in a nutshell. But all those myths that were attributed to the ancient Greeks are then ported over by the Romans, and Saturn becomes one of the chief concerns over Zeus, quite often. And it's a whole new feel in a lot of the porting over into the Roman. It's almost like you're looking at the end of whatever age the Greeks supposedly were, and the new age, which travels all the way up to where you and I exist now, that tale is now being spun. I mean, how do you view it, Wayne? I pretty much view it from the same kind of a vantage point. Uh, you could definitely see the, the changeover in the actual feel of uh, what's going on here. Uh, like you said, it's more... It's gone from more of a Jupiter type of a, a kind of a thing to a Saturn based kind of system. So you're looking at this totally different take on a lot of the same things. And, and like you said, this kind of gets ported over into the Roman concept of things. So uh, when you look at the, and see the old Greek concept of things, that's more Jupiter based and jovial based. And uh, when you move up through the historical era into the the Roman version of it, it becomes more 
geared towards Saturnian ideas more so than jovial ideas. So you can, you can see how it kind of affects us today. Uh, this is kind of the system we're living in today is more of a Saturnian type system gone based on the older jovial system that there was. So uh, when you look at these energies at play here, you can see how it's a shift over from one age to the next. And and that's a good way to put it. You know, we're really not, from my point of view, these are not goddesses and goddesses. It's a way to name and talk about aspects of nature. But to me, it almost feels like the dividing line as we go into what they tell us is ancient Rome is almost in a way like a departure from nature. From that point forward, it's going to be more about what men and women can figure out to do uh, regardless of nature in a way. I would just add that. Well said. I kind of look at them as archetypes, all these different gods and goddesses and mythic figures. And that's why different places, NASA being a good example, use them for their own purposes. Right. And and just to put a fine point on it, Hoaxbuster, the YouTube channel, just put out another incredible clip on Artemis. Um, there's a man of vision, but let's go ahead and keep moving. Juno holds a permanent grudge against Troy because another Trojan, Paris, judged Juno's rival Venus fairest in a divine beauty contest. Juno calls on Aeolus, the god of the winds, directing him to bring a great storm down upon Aeneas as he sails south of Sicily in search of a friendly harbor. Aeolus obeys, unleashing a fierce storm upon the battle-weary Trojans. Aeneas watches with horror as the storm approaches. Winds and waves buffet the ships, knocking them off course and scattering them. As the tempest intensifies, Neptune, the god of the sea, senses the presence of the storm in his dominion. He tells the winds that Aeolus has overstepped his bounds and calms the waters just as Aeneas's fleet seems doomed. Seven ships remain, and they head for the nearest land in sight, the coast of Libya. When they reach the shore, before setting out to hunt for food, a weary and worried Aeneas reminds his companions of previous, more deadly adversities they have overcome and the fated end toward which they strive. So to me, this is almost like just a, an instantaneous retelling of Odysseus in the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, we get these ideas that they're somewhere, someone's trying to get somewhere and the gods keep waylaying them throwing storms or other things. Um, and in the Iliad and the Odyssey, of course, all these other things, you know, it's how we know about Cyclopses and all these things. But to me, this is almost, I don't know if you agree with me, Moeen, but doesn't it kind of feel like just a retelling of that story in a different way? Uh, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And uh, a lot of your PhDs and stuff in literary studies would agree with that statement. A lot of them do actually quite frequently compare Virgil's work with Homer's work. So, I mean, you, you could see how it could be said that a lot of what Virgil wrote was based upon the style that Homer wrote in as well. Exactly. And they're now starting to question rightly whether Homer existed as a human being. Um, but I would further point out that as far as I can tell, this is one of the earliest times when the names of this very same gods, so-called gods, now have the, the Roman name attached to them, right? And so it's like the whole new NASA thing going on where it's Artemis. Um, that's the Greek reference to that idea, but it's actually Diana, the Roman is the, the Romanized uh, idea behind all that. So I think this is also a turn point there where the same forces of nature are now acquiring the new updated Romanized names and Rome hasn't even been founded yet, according to the storyline. 
Meanwhile, on Mount Olympus, the home of the gods, Aeneas's mother, Venus, observes the Trojans' plight and begs Jupiter, king of the gods, to end their suffering. Jupiter assures her that Aeneas will eventually find his promised home in Italy and that two of Aeneas's descendants, Romulus and Remus, will found the mightiest empire in the world. Jupiter then sends a god down to the people of Carthage to make sure they behave hospitably to the Trojans. This is the funny thing. Uh, wouldn't you imagine that most people in school uh, would be exposed to this literature since it's supposedly telling you that Rome was founded by the fallen Troy? What do you think, Wayne? I would tend to think that that's the way it should be, but I could tell you I never learned any of this stuff in school. They stopped teaching uh, these classics by the time I was in school, so I didn't have back then clue one about any of the uh, the Greek myths, the Roman myths, or, or any of this great literature of the past. And, you know, they do cite this as probably the, uh, the greatest piece of literature in Western society, the Aeneid, and I had never read it in school. It goes to show you, and there is a very good reason, if you've paid attention to the last two episodes, which were so key, uh, why we're laying this down. This, again, likely is the bedrock, but in hour two, we're going to draw all the lines. Uh, we're just teeing it up here. Now, Wayne, this is very interesting. We went to the same school district, but we did the gods and goddesses and such, Greek and Roman, in grade school, but I went to Chester Street, which was the advanced program. Did you not go over those in your grade school? No. No, we did not. I don't remember any of this ever being touched on in any of my classes. How very interesting. Yeah, there's a minor reference all the way back in probably grade school and maybe slightly in junior high. But my only real experience was my father gave me books on Greek myth and I read them. Otherwise, I wouldn't know them at all. No, we did a whole study on them in, I don't remember what year it was, but it was one of my grade school years. So how interesting that the curriculum is broken up like that. I'm and not surprised. If all roads lead to Rome, you think this story might be told to everybody, right? Aeneas remains unaware of the divine machinations that steer his course. While he is in the woods, Venus appears to him in disguise and relates how Dido came to be queen of Carthage. Dido's wealthy husband, Sacaeus, who lived with her in Tyre, which is a city in Phoenicia, which is now the country of Lebanon, was murdered for his gold by Pygmalion, her brother. Sacaeus appeared to Dido as a ghost and advised her to leave Tyre with those who were opposed to the tyrant Pygmalion. She fled, and the emigrant Phoenicians settled across the sea in Libya. They founded Carthage, which has become a powerful city. So if nothing else, it's a good thing to, to track the names in all this because they've been reused over and over and over. I'll mention it again, the hoax buster clip that he just did on Artemis, basically Diana, shows why. Hint, hint, hint. Uh, here's a name right here, Dido. Anyone heard that reused recently? How about Pygmalion? Anyhow, Wayne? I'd also like to add to that. Here's a little nice esoteric nugget for those people out there that are interested. Dido's wealthy husband, Psycheus. This is your Hiram Abiff of the Freemasonic Lodge. Just going there for you, just for, to put that out there for people. Oops, there it is. Venus advises Aeneas to go into the city and talk to the queen, who will welcome him. Aeneas and his friend Achates approach Carthage, shrouded in a cloud that Venus conjures to prevent them from being seen. On the outskirts of the city, they encounter a shrine to Juno and are amazed to behold a grand mural depicting the events of the Trojan War. 
Their astonishment increases when they arrive in Dido's court to find many of their comrades who were lost and scattered in the storm asking Dido for aid in rebuilding their fleet. Dido gladly grants their request and says that she wishes she could meet their leader. Achates remarks that he and Aeneas were clearly told the truth regarding their warm welcome, and Aeneas steps forward out of the cloud. Dido is awestruck and delighted to see the famous hero. She invites the Trojan leaders to dine with her in her palace. You know, I wonder how many people are going to make it through the tee-up we're laying down here in hour one, and it's a shame that we can't be more direct in hour one. We just can't do it. The content will be removed, blocked, shadow banned, or struck down. These are important ideas. This has to do with major portions of the history we are handed. Carthage, founding of Rome, some supposed place called Troy. Um, And even if these are only stories in some way, shape, or form, uh, the language and the events portrayed have bearings down to the most ridiculous things in modern life. When I was a child, you want to know what the biggest sink cleaner there was, was called? It's called Ajax. Does anyone know where that idea comes from? the strong sink cleaner Ajax. That's directly from the Trojan War, and there are reasons for the retelling and the reuse of these ideas. Venus worries that Juno will incite the Phoenicians against her son. She sends down another of her sons, Cupid, the god of love, who takes the form of Aeneas's son, Ascanius. In this disguise, Cupid inflames the queen's heart with passion for Aeneas. With love in her eyes, Dido begs Aeneas to tell the story of his adventures during the war and the seven years since he left Troy. Bear in mind that it's typically stated that the Trojan War went on 10 years. For those who have never heard, which I find hard to believe because Hollywood's had their way with it, uh, the 10 years assault by the what we'll call the Greeks, which isn't really accurate, against Troy or the Trojans, they finally won the war by making a big horse statue and hiding warriors inside. Um, The Trojans pull the horse inside the city, the warriors jump out, and that is how Troy is put to ruin, we are told. Anything to add, Wayne? No, I just kind of uh, always wondered about that tale as to whether there was really something to it or not. That That's one of those things where this could just be a mythical tale or, you know, a story, or maybe there is some historical basis to it. But honestly, at this point, we could really never be sure because so much of our history has been screwed with. And uh, so many of the figures within the historical context have been mythologized in, in this way. So who can say for sure? I just always found that the tale of the Trojan horse interesting. Well, that even comes up to us in the modern computer age. How many people have gotten a Trojan on their computer? Where do you think that's referencing? These ideas are what's important. The archetypes, as Jason pointed out, and the ideas. Um, Whether or not the personages ever existed in any real way is really irrelevant. Uh, We're pointing out here that this is cited as the best Western literature ever created. And that tells us that the ideas here are important to someone somewhere. And in hour two, we're going to tell you how and why beyond the shadow of doubt. Now, this tale is very, very long. So we're going to jump ahead and do the cap off of the end of the poem, which ends with a somber description of the character Turnus's death. And with a groan for that dignity, Turnus's spirit fled into the gloom below. Virgil does not narrate the epic's true resolution, the supposedly happy marriage between Aeneas and the character Lavinia, and the initiation of the project of building Rome. Two elements of the classical tradition influence this ending. 
First, Virgil is again imitating Homer, whose Iliad concludes with the death of Hector, the great Trojan enemy of the Greek hero Achilles. Second, Virgil wants his Roman audience to feel that they themselves, not Aeneas's exploits, are the glorious conclusion to this epic story. So this is just a rewording of the idea I, I said before. It's almost like what they did here was retold the old Greek myths for this new time, this new world order that's going to come now. And there's no getting away from it. All roads do truly lead to Rome. But here it is again. Um, there's nothing new under the sun here. These people are just repurposing ideas that have already been presented with slightly different names, maybe slightly different attri attributes. But it's almost like the older so-called Greek myths represent an age we know little or nothing about that has a lot to do with nature and happiness or, or happier times maybe. And what's replacing it is this. And it's not going to be so close to nature, and it's not going to be so jovial. Now, what's interesting is that Rome always seemed to absorb stuff from the Greeks. So perhaps if Virgil was a real person, he was told to write a Roman epic to match this Greek epic that they were now absorbing into their culture. Right. We should state that the, the claim here is that the first Caesar, I guess they don't have Caesar yet, the first emperor, Augustus, is directing him to write this. So even though the story is acting like Rome isn't founded yet, this is written after Rome is a thing. Right. And just to kind of add in to a little bit of the mystery sur surrounding this whole uh, thing, the story of the Aeneid, it's said by some historians that uh, Virgil actually died before completing this, and that upon his death, he requested that the, the whole thing be burned. But uh, Augustus uh, refused to burn it and ordered his people to publish it pretty much just how it is. And that's one of the legends as to why it seems unfinished. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of esoteric encoding in that whole kind of idea, too. It's an unfinished work, and, you know, it involves, uh, the, you know, the concept of fire. Uh, in order, you know, for the renewal of things. So, I, I mean, it's, it's just another layer to this whole story that could kind of lead your mind into the direction where, where we think that this is being used as a template, as a setup, as a foundation for something more yet to come. In a way, it's it's a bit of a justification, isn't it? You know, the claim here is, oh, the gods predicted that this hero had to go here and found this place called Rome. Um, but there's so much encoded in, in how this is going to go. And well, I'll leave it there for now. Go ahead. By tradition, the city of Rome was founded on April 21st, 753 BC. The stories about the founding of Rome are conflicting, but there are two main founding figures to look out for. Romulus, after whom the city may have been named, and Aeneas. It is also possible that Evander of Arcadia founded Rome. Much of the information on the founding of Rome comes from the first book of Livy's History of Rome. I think it's pretty clear, whatever the stories out there may be, the one that Rome latched onto is Romulus and Remus being fed by a wolf mother, right? That's the one that, that they put forward. Um, what would you say, Wayne? Do you suppose that this might have anything to do with that uh, strange change in the, the Bible verse that's, that's talked about as the Mandela effect from, uh, you know, the lion laying down with the lamb to being the wolf laying down with the lamb? I, I don't know. It's just something to consider. But that's something that comes to mind when I think of this whole story of, uh, you know, the founding of Rome, depending upon Romulus and Remus being taken care of by the, the wolf. 
So uh, I don't know if there's more to it or not, or if I'm reading too much in, but uh, I think a lot of this stuff interrelates in a lot of ways that uh, may not be apparent on the face of it. But when you, you start doing a deep dive into a lot of these concepts and stuff that are encoded in these great literary works, you could start to see relationships developing between all these different works. Well, I'm with you all day long, and the Mandela effect, I've always looked for common sense ways to deal with it. Is this a magician's trick? You know, how's it being done? And I haven't had time to, to, to go with it. But when I became aware that the lion was now laying down with the wolf, I said, wait a minute, I know certainly that's not correct. Every, I don't even know how many years I went to Sunday school, um, there was a poster right on the wall that showed the lion laying with the lamb. And as I became later to understand the sky clock, I understood the astronomical encoding there. The lion is Leo, it's the sun sign, and the lamb is the, the spring equinox. The idea there is encoded into the sky clock. That's why the lion is laying with the lamb. And lo and behold, I went and grabbed couple versions of the Bible I have laying around, and I found the wolf, and my jaw dropped open. We're going to have to go at that, but I'm with you all day long. Why the hell would it be a wolf? What what part or what encoded meaning could possibly be there? And I do not accept for a second that uh, the lion was laying down with the wolf. I remember that. Right. And uh, could it be that the wolf is symbolic of Rome? Is that the possible reason for this changing of the Bible verse of the lion laying down with the lamb and now it's the wolf laying down with the lamb? I, I don't know. I wonder. I, I can't say yeah. no. It's it's certainly an idea to look at. Uh, we'll have to Yeah, do, just a line of thought we'll have to go through at some point. Right. We'll have to do Mandela, and that is not going to be an easy one. I spent a lot of time trying to apply common sense to it, and that has not gotten me very far. I've looked at it quite a bit, and really, there are a few that I just can't explain away. Most of it, you could figure out a way to logic it out, but there's just a few things, and, and this one is one of the things that really stood out to me. It's something's just not right. I would conjecture that just the simple fact that we're discussing it in relation to this whole uh, foundational Virgil thing, I think that's kind of telling. I think it's planned into things for in some way, shape, or form. So I, I think there's something behind it. Uh, what that is, I don't know. We may have to make a go at it, but that would be a complete other show. But there's definitely something behind it, and I think it, it's something that's been planned for a long time. I'm with you all day long. That's why we're doing the Ennead, and that's why we're taking pains in the first hour, knowing full well that there may be a ton of people that will not make it through, which is unfortunate, because what we are covering here was taught to everybody that had any bit of education back in the day. It's called the Classics. Um, people were aware of these things for good reason. And when you consider why were they pulled out of curriculum, why does nobody learn Latin or Greek or the classics or anything to do with myth currently? Well, there's a reason for that, too, um, because so much of what we are covering here is the bedrock foundation for where we exist at this moment in time. Years ago, it was called a classical education, and the Greek and Roman myths were certainly a part of that. It was essential learning to understand how things really are. And all I got to do is point at Washington, D.C., and really, if you can't figure out that something is being impressed there coming from these ancient things, you're just not getting it. Well, here, here's an example. In the last two episodes, I used classic art to try to illustrate the points that I make in the episode images, and I had to label them. I had to label what was in the picture so people could understand. And this is what we're talking about. If people were aware of what we're covering and they saw a winged guy holding a scythe 
and a veil being pulled off a lady's face who is in fact pulling a theater mask off a liar, you wouldn't need to be told any of that because you'd be aware of what these ideas are. That is time unveiling truth or Althea or Veritas who is pulling the theater mask off lies. Um, but you see, that's the point. That is the whole point. Now, when you go into a museum somewhere and you see this old art, the average eye is thinking, oh, that's beautiful, or how did they do that, or that's incredible that a human being could make, but they're missing like three quarters of why it's important, because there's a story being told. There's ideas encoded in it, and they're not just random ideas. They are the basis for humans' culture, I guess. Truth's going back further than we can even possibly hope to cover. We don't know how far back. But the point here is that nature is truth, and these ideas came from nature, and all the art back in the day and these things, they're just retelling these stories over and over. Well, guess what? In the modern era, it's almost like we've reached a time where these stories are no longer being told because they're dumbing down society. They're trashing language. The digital age is not helping. Every time you write LOL or OMG, you are contributing to the further lowering of human thought. Right. And you, it could be argued that the powers that be that are at the forefront of what we do here within mankind have kind of hijacked these natural stories and and repackaged them and repurposed them for their own uses. And uh, they keep the public largely ignorant of what the true backstory is behind these things. So they use it as a manipulation tool. Which we proved. So the next time you hear about a baby falling down a well, what will you know now that you didn't know then? But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. There's something else I could point out here. Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yep. And that is explaining the archetype of the hero's journey. What we're seeing now in these more modern stories, which mostly are movies and television, the concept of the hero's journey is just being thrown right out the window with all of this modern propaganda agenda crap being shoved in there. There, there is no hero's journey. It's the anti-hero now. Well, kind of, but also some of the characters have no hero's journey. They're so powerful and they can do no wrong and they never make mistakes and all that kind of thing. Yeah. It's boring, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I see what you're getting at, but it's an important point. Uh, I read the work that you're referencing quite some time ago, um, and it goes to show you it's just the same tale being told over and over and over. Uh, it's like the idea, like when I was young, I don't know, in junior high, my father, who was a, a professor said, did you know there's only 12 storylines? And I couldn't believe it. And he told me, you know, if you invented the 13th storyline, you'd be famous. You know, not too long ago, I went and looked it up and it's all over the place. Some people say there's one or two. Some people say there's roughly 12. Some people say there's 36. It's all over the place. But the point is, is it's because what they're doing is trying to illustrate the truths of me of what it means to be alive. And I think Jason made a good point. I kind of missed the point as he was making it. It's not just there's a lot of antiheroes. They're not going through the steps that are required for the idea of an important figure to arise in the first place. I will give an example for those who may not quite get what I'm on about. The man named George Lucas, who invented Star Wars, blatantly said that he used Joseph Campbell's work as a basis for the original Star Wars saga. And if you break down the original trilogy, it's very easy to see that there's a hero's journey. It's the story of Luke Skywalker, right? That, I think, is pretty clear. The current iteration has the main character as this girl, Rey, who has no hero's journey. She enters into the story already being able to do everything. She doesn't make mistakes. She's all-powerful. She even beats up Luke Skywalker. 
there's no hero's journey. She's just this, I don't even know what you would call it. It's boring. There's nothing to the character. It's two-dimensional. There's nothing to her. She can do anything. She can escape from all the bad guys. She never learned anything. She just was all of a sudden able to do all the things that it took Luke Skywalker three movies to get through. So there you go. They're discarding the hero's journey and just making these characters for propaganda purposes, really. Because if you have a hero, you have an example is the main point. But go ahead, Wayne. And I would like to point out that uh, just what you're talking about, they're removing the journey from the whole thing. So what this equates to, in my view, is this is a shortcut. They're trying to take a shortcut to ascendance. And this is what transhumanism is all about. They want to take that shortcut. There's no journey. They want to be able to upload an education instantly to people's minds. There's no journey. There's no learning. It's just instantaneously knowing. That's what they're looking for. They're trying to eliminate this whole concept from humankind and uh, to remove the hero's journey or any type of a journey. This is what it is to be human. So this is what they're removing from society by doing this. And once again, I could connect the dots all day and, and you know draw the lines all day, how this all ties to transhumanism at some point or another. But this is exactly what is being foretold in these movies that they're doing now by the removal of this hero's journey. Well, I, I mean, this is a critical, critical point. There is no example. And human beings live by example. That's why TV does what it does. When TV becomes the example, like it kind of has now, we're in dire straits. But the point I would make is I, I haven't even watched any of the new Star Wars. To me, it has become soulless propaganda. And by the way, the originals are not that great a film. But as Jason pointed out, the ancient archetype, the hero's journey is in there. It's part of why people appreciate it. But Wayne's point is par excellence. You know, some things in this world that are worth having, you got to work for. And in a lot of ways, the hero's journey is that. You earn a thing. You earn the right to be recognized as a heroic figure or an important person. Those examples and those ideas are being thrown out the window and lowered. And basically what we're covering here is, again, the retelling of a hero's journey from the Roman point of view lifted straight from what we would call the Greek point of view, although that's not really very accurate considering I think Greece became a country in the 1800s or something like that. So now we're going to go over the myths of the founding of Rome. The first is Aeneas as the founder. The Trojan prince Aeneas, an important figure linking the Romans with the Trojans and the goddess Venus, is sometimes credited with the founding of Rome as the culmination of his post-Trojan war adventures. But the version of the Roman foundation myth that is most familiar is that of Romulus, the first king of Rome. Right. And so just to be very clear, both of these people have a connection because Romulus and Remus are the descendants of Aeneas. But why the hell isn't there one clear cut story for the founding of such an important place that has basically touched every corner, pun intended, of our world? I'm just saying. The Romulus and Remus myth. Romulus and Remus were twin brothers, the sons of a Vestal virgin named Rhea Silvia, also called Ilia and the god Mars, according to the legend. Since Vestal Virgins could be buried alive if they violated their chastity vows, whoever forced Rhea Silvia to enter the equivalent of an ancient convent assumed that Rhea Silvia would remain childless. 
The grandfather and great-uncle of the twins were Numitor and Amulius, who between them divided the wealth and kingdom of Alba Longa, which was a city founded by Aeneas's son Ascanius. But then Amulius seized Numitor's share and became sole ruler. To prevent retaliation by the offspring of his brother, Amulius made his niece a Vestal Virgin. When Rhea became pregnant, her life was spared because of the special pleading of Amulius' daughter, Antho. Although she kept her life, Rhea was imprisoned. Contrary to plan, the virgin Rhea was impregnated by the god Mars. When the twin boys were born, Amulius wished to have them killed, and so bid someone, perhaps Faustulus, a swineherd, to expose the boys. Faustulus left the twins on the riverbank where a she-wolf nursed them, and a woodpecker fed and guarded them until Faustulus took them into his care again. The two boys were well-educated by Faustulus and his wife, Acca Laurentia. They grew up to be strong and attractive. As adults, Remus found himself imprisoned, and in the presence of Numitor, who determined from his age that Remus and his twin brother could be his grandsons. Learning of Remus' predicament, Faustulus told Romulus the truth of his birth and sent him off to rescue his brother. Amulius was despised, and so Romulus drew a crowd of supporters as he approached Alba Longa to kill the king. The twins reinstalled their grandfather Numitor on the throne and freed their mother who had been imprisoned for her crime. Since Numitor now ruled Alba Longa, the boys needed their own kingdom and settled in the area in which they had been raised, but the two young men couldn't decide on the exact site and started building separate sets of walls around different hills. Romulus around the Palatine, Remus around the Aventine. There they took auguries to see which area the gods favored. On the basis of conflicting omens, each twin claimed his was the site of the city. An angry Remus jumped over Romulus' wall, and Romulus killed him. Rome was therefore named after Romulus. All right, just a couple brief things here. There, now you know something about what used to be called the classics. Um, this is the intent. These are the ancient archetypes. But I'll point out one key thing here. What is it with the twins? The twins are always so important. It's going on right now with the new moonshot, right? Apollo was the old moonshot. The new one is his twin sister Artemis or Diana in the Roman way of reckoning. The twin towers, the idea of Gemini, hint, hint, hint. These are ideas that every time you see them, as in this story, you better understand what's being shown you. Precisely. It's a definite theme. It's an archetype that just prevails all through literature, uh, throughout all history. And this also lends back a kind of a shout out to the whole Cain and Abel story because of just the theme here. Romulus kills Remus. It's one of those archetypes that is just all pervasive through things. And we see it retold over and over again. Well, there's an occulted meaning to all this, of course, and for the people who pay attention to the sky, drawing the lines of Gemini to things like the events of 9-11, um, these are big deals. Not only that, think of things like, what was the whole Nazi story we were sold, that all the Nazis fleed after the war, they went to uh, Argentina, right? And supposedly there, they were experimenting with twins, and some place in Argentina to this day is one of the highest occurrences of twins. Um, these things are important things to understand, and they have a direct bearing on what I'll call Western life in the modern age. We also see the concept of the virgin birth right. laced into the story as well. Kind of an important thing to point out. 
of course, these ancient archetypes, you know, people like to act like the spiritual path they follow or the religion they're part of is the first telling of these things. Sorry, sorry, sorry. These are the same archetypal ideas and truths and aspects of nature that have been told, I guess, since human beings could speak. And here it is, too, in the founding of Rome, um, the supposed virgin birth from the Vestal Virgin of the story Jason just laid down. And we don't know where these stories started from because before they were written down, it would have been oral tradition for goodness knows how long. Hard to know. Well, we probably never will know. Right, and that's the thing. Same themes going on all throughout history, all throughout these different cultures and mythologies and stuff too. It's all the same themes and they all have their grand source way back in prehistory and they tie back to nature. These are all concepts of nature that are encoded here. And this is what we could see as these archetypes that are being carried forward. As an informational construct, it almost doesn't matter, right? It's just that that same story that was told in a time we can no longer remember, it's being told again. Because the archetypes, the ideas, and the encoded, occulted information is still there, regardless of what year it actually was, or whether this hero or that hero actually lived as a living human being. Um, the ideas are retold over and over. That was a big part of our last episode with baby Jessica. How many gazillion times had that story down the well been told before the 1980s, I would ask? Yeah, it's all the same, only the names are changed. Somebody should write a song like that. Yeah, I think they wrote a TV show. The names were changed to protect the innocent. It's just in this case, they're not innocent. (laughs) Just be careful because it's slippery when wet. Yeah. (laughs) Now we have the story of Aeneas and Alba Longa. Aeneas, son of the goddess Venus and the mortal Anchises, left the burning city of Troy at the end of the Trojan War with his son Ascanius. After many adventures, which the Roman poet Virgil describes in the Aeneid, Aeneas and his son arrived at the city of Laurentum on the west coast of Italy. Aeneas married Lavinia, the daughter of a local king, Latinus, and founded the town of Lavinium in honor of his wife. Ascanius, son of Aeneas, decided to build a new city, which he named Alba Longa, under the Alban Mountain. Alba Longa was the hometown of Romulus and Remus, who were separated from Aeneas by about a dozen generations. Alba, there's a name we've seen used in Hollywood recently, um, but they head to a place where Rome's going to be founded, and it's King Latinus, King of the Latins. Um, So there's other things about this story. So these guys are supposedly Trojans that lost their city to the Greeks. They're coming to a place where there's a king of the Latins, and Latin ends up being the big thing of this culture, we were told. But uh, you should bear in mind, look at the naming here, Lavinium. It's almost like Londinium. Everything about modern society, these, these are the roots, for the Western world, that is. Right. And one other takeaway we could take from this is when you look at uh, the scientific names that they use for things, this is all in Latin. So this is what our quote unquote science terms as the ultimate tool for, for naming things. This is, this is their fallback for the definition of things. They use Latin to describe these things. Well, could you imagine if the scientific naming of things was done in English? You'd have to have a hell of a lot more words, wouldn't you? Um, Yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing, because Latin is a much more descriptive language. It gives things like gender, color, all these things. Just from a few words put together, you can understand. If it was done in English, there'd be a sentence for every bird name or every flower name. Or we'd have things named like Big Red Cow or something, you know? Yeah, (laughs) the the Big Red Cow with the short legs and the the curly hair or something like that, which, you know, you can handle that in in Latin with a couple words. Maybe it would be a Red Bull. 
Well, we've got those two now, don't we? They gave you wings. <laughs> <laughs> Let's ask Rome what that means. All right, next we have some words from Plutarch on the possible founders of Rome. Roma, from whom this city was so called, was the daughter of Italus and Lucaria, or by another account of Telephus, Hercules' son, and that she was married to Aeneas or to Ascanius, Aeneas' son. Some tell us that Romanus, the son of Ulysses and Circe, built it. Some, Romus, the son of Amathion, Diomede, having sent him from Troy, and others, Romus, king of the Latins, after driving out the Tyrrhenians, who had come from Thessaly into Lydia and from thence into Italy. I think we can cut to the chase here. It doesn't matter what Plutarch said. The one they latched onto was Romulus and Remus being raised by a wolf. But I noticed, too, that you used the older spelling of Rome, Roma. In my forum, someone just did the simple numerology to show that that's an absolute one-to-one 9-11 in code, Roma. And the last one. Isidore of Seville on Evander and the Founding of Rome. There is a line, number 313, in the eighth book of the Aeneid that suggests Evander of Arcadia founded Rome. Isidore of Seville reports this as one of the stories told about the founding of Rome. A banished band, driven with Evander from the Arcadian land, have planted here and placed on high their walls. Their town, the founder Palantium calls, derived from Pallas, his great-grandsire's name. But the fierce Latians' old possession claim with war infesting the new colony. These make thy friends, and on their aid rely. You know, why the hell do you have all these famous names coming back to offer another possible way? And what's ironic about this, you know, it's even made fun of in, uh, in that movie John Wick, right? There's, there's Italian people at the high table, this place that supposedly runs the world, but their lineage goes all the way back to what we're talking about here, supposedly. So I guess there are supposed to be people in the world who actually know the truth about how Rome was founded, but again, it doesn't matter. The same archetypes are, are told over and over and over. Wayne, before I wrap up, why don't you tell people where they can find your books and contact you and all that information? All right. I could be reached if anybody's looking to to reach me on alchemicaltechrevolution at gmail.com. Uh, I also have been running a Facebook page up until recently called Files from the Conspiratorium, which I am currently locked out of, but there's still an awful lot of good information on there if people want to check that out. Uh, my books are available through Amazon or any other fine book retailer, and they're called The Alchemical Tech Revolution, Fulfilling Ancient Esoteric Agendas Through the Use of High Technology. That's my first book. And my newest book, which just came out this past April, is called The Autism Epidemic, Transhumanism's Dirty Little Secret. And they're chock full of all kinds of useful information that's that's pertinent to our future. So if you want to check those out, uh, feel free to go ahead. I'd appreciate it greatly. Right. Yeah, that's how I actually met Wayne. Jason handed me one of the books. By the time I hit the Overton window, I knew I wanted to have them on. So that's going to bring our one. And I apologize if that was a little dry, but how many people out there know anything about this? How many people know anything about Roman or Greek myth or what used to be taught in every school anywhere there was an education that mattered called the classics, which is basically the founding archetypes of Western civilization and everything we live now. All roads always lead to Rome in the things that we talk about here. 
When we come back, we're going to begin to draw the lines that we can't draw in hour one. We're even going to get into the naming of the space shuttles, by the way. For some reason, the Challenger was known that it was going to explode long before it did. These things have been attributed to Virgil as well, although that's been scrubbed from the internet, so it's becoming harder to know every day. Anyhow, we hope you'll join us at Crow 777 Radio, where we're going to exercise our free speech and say all the things that we can no longer say in hour one. It's a bit like the Baby Jessica episode. We can lay down the foundation, but everything that matters has to be said where free speech still survives. Anyhow, that's it. That's the end of hour one, episode 172. Join us at Crow777Radio.com if you want to know some things. Cheers.